So, Chuck, before we start, um, i like to, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to present our audience with a, uh, a content warning at the start of this episode. Okay. Uh, due to the nature of this conversation, which is about heaven, uh, there may be talk of the belief in the transformation of our physical lowly bodies to a renewed, glorious, heavenly body. As such, there may be references to the 1985 film Cocoon, starring Steve Gutenberg and Wilford Brimley. If you were subjected to this film at a young age and as a result traumatized by the portrayal of the cocoon aliens, there will be alarms placed throughout the episode to warn the listener or viewer to skip ahead. Thank you. Hello and welcome. To Masters of Divinity. I am your moderator, JP, and I am here, as always, with Father Fun. <laughs> How awesome would that be, actually? <laughs> that he just like was just suddenly in. We should have talked to him about being on heaven because he's oh, yeah, a clergy yeah. person too. Yeah. Oh. Uh, no, I'm here with Father Chuck, <clears throat> as always. Aloha. Can I just say something right now, just to kind of warm us up a little bit? You are. You are saying plenty of things right now. Great. Awesome. Um, I wish I had just a little bit of a disposable income right now. I don't know if you check the stocks, Chuck. The stonks? The stonks. Uh, GameStop's uh, stocks are soaring. Yes, thanks to the uh, the the Redditors at um, slash R Wall, Wall Street, Street bets. bets. Yeah. Yeah. I made a little, little stop over there before we... Uh, hopped on here just to see what was going down and apparently um there is it's just a party that i'm missing out on with people making like a million dollars <laughs> people have like screenshotting their robin hood uh, app and showing everyone how much money they're making and it's it's insane right now and uh all of the financial news channels are losing their minds dudes with like well coiffed haircuts are like red in the face upset at these these redditors who have foiled oh the hedge fund. God forbid. God forbid. Public access. Like, isn't that the whole point of like an IPO of being a publicly traded company is that the public can buy shares and do things with? I mean, I, I guess I don't really know much about stocks. I had to give myself a crash course this morning to see what the hubbub was about. These guys, you know, riding just this, this wave of financial success has led them to like rescue that movie theater industry apparently i'm gonna put my tinfoil hat on for a second <clears throat> okay. um, because i noticed that they are now starting to invest in amc uh, and we also saw they were investing in blackberry <laughs> and nokia and bed bath and beyond and now i just heard tootsie roll has gone up 50 percent today i suspect that these guys let's call a spade a spade for a second these guys are trolls I think that they're now investing in those companies to raise the prices, sell those, and then put them back into GameStop. Probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I, I'm worried that they're creating like a bubble that's just going to be bad for everyone in the long run. Where were they with Toys R Us a few years ago? For real, dude. I mean, Toys R Us is that's what happened. Disappearance to them, from our culture has absolutely nothing to do with their lack of success as a business. It has, or is less, really less to do. It has everything to do with the fact that they got purchased by a bigger company that decided that they didn't want to keep them open anymore and just close them. It's exactly the sort of thing that they're trying to prevent with GameStop right now. Now, let me also just say, right, I, I shared with you earlier an article from The Verge, 
mm-hmm. that had just such a condescending tone about <laughs> the preservation of GameStop. Here's the thing. Electronics Boutique, which has been bought by GameStop, okay. employed me when I was in high school. Of course. Sure, I sure. I worked for that company, and I have friends from that time who are still employed by GameStop. They made their career out of working through the company of GameStop to come to management and everything. So there are real people Hmm. whose futures are at stake here when certain financial types decide that they feel that a store just needs to go out of business and so they just try to force it into its own death so that they can make a bunch of money on that. And that's really messed up that you would trade people's lives like that. And that's what was happening with GameStop. Like that, they they were going under like i think the share started at like four dollars before they this whole thing started yeah and now it's up to 350 dollars i think like 370 <clears throat> so yeah it's uh wild and crazy times anyway that's been our our financial uh segment of today <laughs> should i just have like stock stocks on the bottom like <laughs> but it's just GameStop repeated over and over again just else. um just one um but i mean to tie it into the episode, I'm sure there are a few people who feel very heavenly right now. Yes, they are They are in heaven at the moment, feeling heavenly, yes. Uh, so today we're talking about heaven. Uh, it's the first part in a series that we're doing on uh, the Christian afterlife. This week we'll be talking about heaven. Next week we'll be talking about H-E double hockey sticks. Jin-jin-jin. <laughs> Or like just a wailing guitar. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, <clears throat> as a little little uh, little wild card, we're going to be talking about purgatory after that. And then we'll round out the month with a conversation about the movie Soul from Pixar that came out uh, in December. So I'm looking forward to it. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Just a month of theology. Which I, I am all for. Of course. I am all for. Um, <clears throat> and uh, what's going to be interesting, too, is... We're going to be touching on things that, like, to me, at this point, are, like, obvious about what it means to be a Christian. But I'm realizing that it's sort of shocking, and some people even think that it's Mm non-Christian to talk about, because we just sort of take for granted a very particular understanding of not only what the afterlife is, but how we get there and all of that kind of stuff. And I think we're going to talk about that, too. So be prepared to be challenged, perhaps. So uh, we're going to kick it off by just talking about the ways in which heaven is portrayed in pop culture, which is sort of what spurred this idea, I think, on your part. Right, Chuck? There's a thing in pop culture where heaven is very, is usually depicted as kind of lame <laughs> or vague. I remember reading an article years and years ago. I think it was in Relevant Magazine when Constantine came out, and there was a discussion about you know, how the film has all of these just really, like, rich depictions of hell. You know, and it's, and in that movie, it's L.A., right? You see, it. the whole thing is that it's L.A., but it's sort of L.A., in this, you know, hellish state, but then at one point you see, you know, LA supposed to be as heaven, but all you kind of see is the skyline obscured by a cloud. You don't actually get like into the details of what heavenly Los Angeles looks like in that movie. And in uh, this article I read, um, the director said something that it's almost impossible to depict a version of heaven 
in pop culture that's going to be satisfactory, which is, they said, but it was also kind of crazy because, you know, it's the human ideal. It's the thing that we're, you know, ultimately trying to get to. So we, you know, it should be something that we should be able to easily depict in pop culture. But every time somebody does, it's, you know, it's, it, it comes across as kind of lame or vague, right? It's like a yeah. white room or just clouds or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have a small list of movies <clears throat> in which heaven is portrayed mm-hmm. uh, that kind of stick out to me. That's uh, I, I think are pretty good. I think the first time I, I ever saw heaven portrayed in a movie was in a little film called all dogs go to heaven. Oh yes. That's that movie. Uh, that movie kind of wrecked. <laughs> kind of wrecked like eight-year-old Chuck. Yeah. Where am I? This is the great hall of judgment. Judgment? Oh, not to worry, Charlie. You'll go to heaven. All dogs go to heaven because unlike people, dogs are naturally good and loyal and kind. Huh. Yeah, that's true. I think you'd kind of see a trend form once I started going through these movies. Right. Uh, let's see. What Dreams May Come Ooh, with Robin that's Williams. That's the one. Robin Williams, right? It's, set, it's based on like paintings by Matisse and stuff. Yes, that one. Yeah. I think what these movies kind of have, have in common, they, for one, they stick out to me. One thing they have in common is that they're temporary. They're all like visiting heaven. Right. And they're given like a second chance to go back to Earth. Right. It's like a holding place or like working well, their way back in. Well, that's the convention, right? I mean, that's what I mean. Soul is basically that plot line, too. Right. Yes, so, it is. yeah, you know, it's um, yeah, I mean, and, or like that. Uh, what's that book that people read? the heaven is for realsies totes for realsies, <laughs> the, uh, the Greg Kinnear movie. And so I think I thought I think that's that's interesting. Whenever heaven is portrayed, it's usually a place people like want to leave. I mean, like Constantine, even right. Like, you know, it, it's temporary, of course. John's not trying to leave heaven, right? That's like his whole right. thing is he's realized he's achieved it. And then Satan's like, nope. Even if you look at art from like the Renaissance, right? Like it's it's very beautiful art, but it's still, the themes are still pretty intact. Clouds. Right. <laughs> Clouds and robes. I don't know. I guess this is all like what has influenced our view of heaven. So let me ask you, Chuck, what do people, especially Christians, get wrong about heaven? Well, there's a lot of ways I could talk about that to answer that question. I think a lot of why we get these ideas about heaven is that they're based on people's near-death experiences. And so there's a sentimental element that gets leached into these ideas. The Bible actually doesn't give us too many, you know, I'll talk a little bit about the, the Bible's depictions of heaven, but the Bible's depictions of heaven are not as, like, bland and cloudy as, as I agree. we see in popular culture. Yeah, I remember hearing something about uh, Golden Streets. Um. Well, uh, yeah, and I mean, like I said, I'll, I'll touch on that in a moment here because I, because the, the first thing is, is that I think we we just misunderstand we, we misunderstand our own personal experiences and what may very well. I remember uh, Victor. I mean, Paul Copan is a professor at Palm Beach Atlantic University when when I was a student there. You were a student there too, actually. In fact, um, but I remember in a class I took with him once. He said that I'd be careful that you know. These visions that people experience when they're when they're dying, they very well just could be things that that the brain is experiencing as it's shutting down. And so we shouldn't confuse that with how it may be. Right. Because, you know, it's a you're, 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 it's a physical phenomenon that you're seeing rather than, you know, some other uh, some other reality. Right. Like but, the, yeah. the bright light at the end of the tunnel and stuff is 
yeah, kind yeah. of like the same thing as like you know using DMT or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and like, but like heaven in the Bible is you read like the opening chapters of Ezekiel, and you get this. You know, Ezekiel mentions how he's in the presence of the Lord, and it's the heavenly throne room. It's depicted as a place like it's bright in color. I know like Revelation talks about it having a rainbow, an emerald rainbow in it, plus like an entire like ocean in front of the throne. Um, there's mentions as a figure seated on the throne, but they're like surround. Like the only time that clouds are showed up is it's thick storm clouds. It's not like the white billowy cumulonimbus clouds we always see, but it's like dark storm clouds with lightning and thunder coming out of them. Um, and then on top of that are the, you know, the horrific hell, like I should say hell beasts because they're heaven beasts, <laughs> but, but the horrific heaven beasts, right? You know, these, you know, these cherubim that have four faces and six wings and they always move in a straight line and they're surrounded by wheels. And then there are the, you know, the hybrid animals and just these crazy, you know, things that are, that are depicted in the scene. That's not at all, you know, like Reese Witherspoon in like a nighty with like wings and a harp. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's colorful and not exactly Clarence from uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Right. It's like it's kind of mind breaking. That's kind of the, the subtext throughout all of it is if we with our mortal minds were to see God in his like godness, like we would become insane because we're incapable of processing it. Right. We it, it's it's a whole different level of reality. And so even these illusions that show up in the scriptures give this sense that it is, you know, it's like the 15th dimension or something. I mean, it's just a whole different thing. And it doesn't correspond to lights at end of tunnels and vague white empty rooms and, and all of that. It's it's alive. It's living. I mean, there's music. There's crowds of people shouting. There's all these celestial beings surrounding and, um, you know, that may or may not be gods from other religious identities. It's all this kind of craziness in there. And so it's a, it's a very different kind of place, the way that scriptures depict it than a lot of Christians assume. And so I think that's one of the first things I would say that Christians get wrong is just what it looks like. You know, again, it's, it's, it's a mind-breaking sort of place because, you know, it's, it's perfection. And we live in a world that is not defined by perfection. And so perfection is going to make everything feel skewed and wrong. But I think the other thing, too, and it's, we'll get into this more, I think, is it's also not a destination. Tell me, like, what, do you, what is heaven to you? And how, how have you understood it as, you know, growing up? Okay, as I have always understood it as, uh, heaven was a place <clears throat> where my soul used to live. And then my parents had me, and that's and then my soul came down into my body. And while I'm here, uh, you know, I've been saved. I now follow Jesus. I'm a Christian. I go to church. Now that I'm saved, I go to heaven once I die. My soul leaves, it leaves my body. It will go back to heaven. And if it doesn't leave my body and go to heaven when I die, uh, the rapture might happen before then. And, like, my entire body will go to heaven, where we'll be just kind of hanging out until the end of the Left Behind series. <laughs> which is i think like 20 books so okay so what you what you're describing is a little probably a little bit different than what i grew up with okay because i don't know that my church ever said that like my soul was in heaven before i was born really interesting um i don't think any of my church has I... said it either but i think it, it was just sort of like through osmosis Why? i also went to like a christian school like two christian schools and it's like i feel like when you go to a school with many denominations things just kind of like yeah get mixed up you know with all the relationships you make and stuff so yeah. i think there's a lot of osmosis happening in my yeah, well, in my understanding 
Well, and it, and it, and it, this raises like a whole range of, of issues is one is even the concept of a soul, which is not, which that's a Greek, that's a Greek concept, not a Hebrew concept. And so the, when the Bible speaks of like in the old Testament about something that we use the word soul for, it's actually more talking about like your life essence. It's not talking about this eternal immaterial sort of true part of yourself. It's just the principle that makes you alive and it's your blood and it's carried in your breath. And once those things are out of your body, that's, that's kind of like a question I, I brought up a lot when talking about sort of like, you know, what do we believe in terms of like the metaphysical world? I've always had all these questions about the soul and no one really seems to like care. <laughs> like it's something I shouldn't really like think about, but I'm like, what is it? Where does it come from? What is it made out of? Why is it here? Why can't I just leave it at any time? I don't get it. Uh, it's a part of me that exists in a metaphysical world. That doesn't really make much much sense. I don't know. How much is a way? Does it smell like something? Like- I mean, the thing is, is that pretty much every religious system in the world has some kind of has some concept of an like immaterial aspect to the human person that what makes us us is more than just the sum of our parts that there, there is like an essence there's something in us that's unique um the greeks called that a soul and i mean there i think they had a different word for it, but that's the latin term that we use soul and their concept of it was that again it's it's, in, it's an eternal thing that is temporarily enfleshed and this actually comes from plato um not the not the not the toy but the, you know the philosopher um and uh it you know, you know, Aristotle and others, but it's this ideal, uh, this, this sense that we, maybe you know of um, the whole idea of, of um, substances and accidents, this notion that, say, a chair is conforming to some sort of immaterial ideal sense of a chair, and so when you sit on a chair, it's, you're, you're experiencing the accidents of a chair, it's the part that you can touch, you can see, taste, whatever, but there is a spiritual ideal of a chair, and all of our constructions of chairs is attempting to sort of like wow. capture that ideal um i'm not nearly high enough to even begin to <laughs> grasp that <laughs> so so but like that 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 corresponds with this idea in greek thinking that then there is something like that for us as humans that there is sort of a true self um and you hear that a lot with in a lot of crit, like new agey christian thinking richard Rohr talks about the false self and the true self and how it relates to soul thinking and all this kind of stuff um i but again, it this is sort of it's a Greek philosophical concept that may or may not be consistent with what the earliest concepts of the scriptural tradition enshrined by Jewish religion um, subscribes to. So, to, but to, to get it, use that long way of answering your question, JP, of of how we got to where we are, where we believe about heaven as this sort of the source and return of the human soul. You know, the 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 cocoon alien. You know, when we shed off our rubber skin. Hold up. Okay. The alarm. I'm, I'm pausing for the alarms. Okay, continue. That, the answer to that is um, is Aristotelian Platonic Greek philosophy. When Judaism wound up encountering the Greeks after, you know, Alexander the Great, you know, as a Macedonian, conquered the known world, Hellenization wound up showing up in the Jewish communities and a lot of Jewish people began just like everybody else in the ancient world really embraced it because they saw it as this really, you know, developed system of thinking and it was, you know, it was great. And so a lot of Hellenistic ideas made their, you know, were, were synthesized into Jewish thinking and some of it good, some of it awkward, but the, the idea of a soul, the idea of a heaven like that kind of 
started getting itself into um, into Jewish philosophy. This, however, also kind of somewhat coincided with this rising development within Judaism of an idea known as the resurrection of the dead, which is the belief that that we would one day rise from our graves um, and that we the death would be reversed. And this sort of coincides with Babylonian ideas during the Babylonian captivity. So Babylon captures the Jews. The Jews are spread throughout the Mediterranean world. They return from there to reestablish their home in Jerusalem. Several centuries later, uh, uh, Alexander comes along, Hellenization influence. So you've got these new threads and currents of ideas in impacting Jewish religious thinking. Um, this carries over when the Christian movement takes root and we get these ideas around the nature of materiality. And there are various brand breakoffs of both Jewish and Christian religious ideas. Uh, like within Christianity, we have the docetists. Um, there are of course the various Gnostic groups that we hear of. Um, and, and it's a few others that I can't think of off the top of my head right now, but they all held to some notion that the world is a temporary state of affairs and that we're only here for a limited amount of time. And that in fact, our goal is really to escape this flesh and blood existence. You know, maybe we think of Yoda in Empire Strikes Back and he says, you know, luminous beings are we, not this crude matter, right? That's an idea that draws from this kind of thread of thinking. That, I've, I've heard that quote so many times in the youth group, totally. Yeah, and it's, so that's fascinating because it's not Christian, like in any way, mm -hmm. shape or form. Interesting. Um, it's actually the kind of stuff that the that a lot of the uh, a lot of the writers of the New Testament were actively trying to combat against. John's Gospel, for instance, regularly has Jesus touching people, right? Like, you know, at one you know he's his he spits and makes makes mud out of clay and he rubs it in a guy's eyes, or he like sticks his fingers in some dude's ears before he. Uh, heals him of deafness. He, you know, lays hands on people. Um, he eats a fish after, you know, he's resurrected. Um, you know, he invites Thomas and he invites Thomas to touch his wounds. So Jesus is very tangible. And John really goes to a lot of trouble to show the tangibility of Jesus, because by the time John's gospel is being written, there's this whole movement within the Christian world trying to say that well, no, we're trying to escape this world and that Jesus wasn't actually really among us. He just appeared as a human, but he was really this luminous being who just made himself appear to us and that he wasn't really crucified. None of that really happened. And John wants to say, no, 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 no. Like he was human. He he was among us as a person, as a human flesh and blood being. And and so he wants to really he really wants to confront this idea that our religion is not supposed to be opposed to the body. It's not supposed to be opposed to the material world. It's rather to see that, you know, God is working to redeem the material world and we're not trying to escape it. And they were very concerned um, by these this sort of Hellenized Christian thinking that was gaining a lot of widespread acceptance because, I mean, you know, they were Greeks that, you know, the Gentiles had been engrafted into this Jewish religion and they brought a lot of their Greek and Gentile ideas with them and tried to work it out. You know, so the church is spending all these centuries trying to work out exactly what it believes when it's, you know, a merging of Jewish and Gentile or, Jew, you know, Jewish and Greek religious ideas. And so, you know, we get, you know, we get all these struggles of trying to define things, but overwhelmingly the church makes a strong condemnation early on that 
they are very much against this Gnostic idea that, you know, that we are somehow meant to be separated from the body and that the body in the tangible world is corrupt. That was something they would have been really upset about. This is all really fascinating for me and my evangelical ears, um, because like this is, I mean, basically everything you're saying just completely flies in the face of everything I grew up with in terms of like a soul, in terms of an afterlife. Um, it's very much seen as like separate because like the, the body is seen as like it, it's, it's a fallen evil thing. <laughs> Right, it's a prison, yeah. Um, and the, the world <clears throat> is the same way, and that's why we, and that's why there's such, um, there's so much anxiety around not being of the world, right? Right, and it's important to note when Jesus is talking about that idea of you know of you know avoiding the world and condemning the world and overcoming the world that. There's a nuanced idea there that's really hard for us to understand in English that what what Jesus is actually talking about is not the not the cosmos, right? Not the sphere of existence in which we live, you know, not our environment, not our planet, not those kinds of things. He's actually talking about the the sort of state of power that exists and the sort of I mean, for lack of a better word, it's the status quo. It's this idea that, which I, I know I just use a Latin word to discount other Latin concepts, but um, but that's he's what the world is a the world is a bit more of an intangible concept. It's you know we we realize it when we well I mean you know we kind of see it if you're well, let's just say that you know let's talk about when those moments when we're smug about movies and we're like how come everybody just seems to really like just like terrible cinema and they just gravitate to just really lowbrow, terrible stuff, right? That's kind of where we're tapping into the sense that what Jesus is getting at here is this sense of a world where nobody thinks of anything higher. It's just, you know, we're in it for today and we're just going to, you know, it, and, and, you know, we look at maybe the political systems that see people who, you know, they don't care who they hurt so long as they can make some money or achieve some power. That's what Jesus is talking about. Like he's telling the church to not be a part of that. Right. Don't love that. Right. You like know, a, but, like a, a, another world outside of ours. Is that? Yeah. 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 Interesting. Like, yeah. This sense of like it's a corrupt uh, it's a corrupt understanding of the world is what he's saying. Mm. Don't, don't love that. Right. It's, you know. Yes, love the trees, love the birds, love your neighbor, love the people around you, love the body that you have, you right. know, like definitely love those things because God gave them to us. They're gifts and we should love them. But don't love the corrupt vision of it that persists in our world. Right. That, you know, misses the point of it. Interesting. Okay, so then, well, I was going to go to this Bible verse, but I realized it doesn't make much sense without a little bit of context. Uh, I guess I should just ask you, like, you know, what is heaven then? There is a place called heaven. Right. Okay. It is, it is a state of existence, right? There is, there is, it is, but it is, 
heaven is the place where God is. It's it's just where God is. It's God's realm. Maybe we'd say it's the area out, you know, outside of creation. Um, you know, where God is present. Um, the I actually have the, the if you want the Episcopal Church's answer. Um, we have a catechism in the Episcopal Church, and there's a question: What do we mean by heaven and hell? Answer: By heaven, we mean eternal life in our enjoyment of God. Um, so you know, the way the church understands it, it's it's a state of being in one sense, you know, like it's it, for this, you know, um, eternal life and our enjoyment of God. Um, so eternal joy in the presence of God, but ultimately heaven is in the most like simplest terms. It's the place where God is. Okay. So it is, it's, it's just like another plane of existence. Yes. Like beyond our own realm, which is something, I mean, I think everyone can kind of grasp. Yeah. Because right. Like the, I mean, the whole idea of creation, right? Creation yeah. is, you know, something that is separate from God. And so, right. So like God creates a separate sphere from himself. That is creation. But the idea that we're getting to is that we don't necessarily end up there. Not necessarily. Okay. See, and that's, that's the interesting part that I want to focus on now. Okay. Where do we end up then? Well, that's the, 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 the question is, what are we talking about? Long-term, short-term? Long-term. Our, the, Long-term. Our, ultimate, our ultimate final destination. Our ultimate final destination, when all is said and done, if we follow the story set forward in the scriptures um, ultimate, and give the vision that's given to us by the book of Revelation, which ends the Christian Bible, um, is that we do wind up in heaven, but we only wind up there because heaven comes to earth. So Jesus says um, to the uh, to the apocalypticist, to the person writing the book, traditionally Saint John, um, he says, "You know, behold, I am making all things new." Now that's an important thing because he's not saying I'm making new things. He's saying I am making all things as though they are new. And so the ultimate, final, long-term destination is this sense that you know that heavenly Jerusalem, this this. You know, which is a reference back to the early days of the Jewish religion, where the temple and everything that's being built is being built according to a sort of a, you know, heavenly ideal. It's an earthly, it's an earthly, you know, depiction of what's happening in in sort of God's presence. Um, that it comes into our world and it perfects our world and makes it as though it is new. And so the boundaries between God's realm and our realm are completely broken apart. And heaven is here on earth, not away from earth. Okay, so then what about in the meantime, short term? Short term. Yeah. Comet comet strikes your house and you die. Where do you go? That's what you're saying? Yes, exactly. Um, well, the, the church is actually not, the, the, throughout, throughout, the, throughout history, the church has not been exactly, uh, hasn't had a consensus about this idea. Um the scriptures refer frequently to what in Greek is called Sheol, um, S-H-E-O-E-O-L. Um, you see it in—sorry, sorry, sorry, take it back. That's the Hebrew. Hebrew, it's Sheol. It's in the Psalms a lot. Um, 
in Greek, the word is Hades, which this will be a good conversation for our discussion on hell next week, because there's a common misconception that Hades and hell are the same thing, and they are not. I know. I got it. I got the concept. Um, Hades is the Greek concept for the grave. The Hebrew Hebrews had the similar concept called Sheol, just the grave, the realm of the dead. And so the, the proper biblical understanding of what happens when someone dies is that we die and this immaterial part of ourselves, maybe we call it a soul for, for shorthand's sake, even though it might not correspond directly to the Greek concept of a soul, um, this immaterial life essence part of us, it exists in this realm. Traditionally, it's like a place of sleep. It's rest. You're just there. Um, maybe there's consciousness, maybe there's not, um, depending on the kind of life you live, you might experience it as a place of suffering or as a place of rest and joy. Um, within Jewish thinking, there was an, an element of it where you were close to Abraham. They called it Abraham's bosom and it was sort of a state of paradise. Um, but ultimately it's a waiting room for the day that you are raised from your grave. And when that happens, you're living in this heaven on earth reality. So within Orthodox Christianity, so I'm talking about like your Greeks, your Russians, your Ethiopians, your Assyrians, they believe that some individuals are blessed by God in being able to be welcomed into the heavenly realms prior to the resurrection of the dead. And that those folks, they experience what they call glorification, and they are, they are added to what we would, you know, in the West call saints. Um, so you get, you know, icons written of yourself and, you know, all that kind of stuff. If the church has determined that you are one of these people and it's only done through, you know, if you've received a vision from them or experienced a miracle from them, then they have to say, oh, well, then that shows that they were welcomed into the heavenly realms. And so therefore we can, you know, we can treat them as saints. The Catholic Church, of course, has a idea about this. It's a little bit different than the Orthodox idea. Um, and it becomes this whole vetting process of determining whether or not it happened. Orthodoxy is a little bit more open-ended on, on this. But ultimately, again, it's this idea that that is reserved for only a select few people right now. It's a, it's a, it's a gift given to them before now or before later. So the idea that you would die and immediately either go to heaven or hell is not something that is really a common belief among Christians until more recent times. Because the, the ancient church would never have believed that that's something what you automatically do. It's fascinating because I know, like, what you described to me is basically what, uh, you know, I've always been taught was sort of the Jewish belief of, of, of an afterlife, which is, you know, I've, I've heard all about Abraham's bosom, and that's just sort of where you rest until, I guess, I, I guess for them it was like until the Messiah returned, right? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting that you're talking about this uh, heaven is emerging of the earth in heaven um uh because you know that's essentially what what jesus is right like he is that combination of divinity and the earth like right um so like it would make sense that it was sort of like preparing us for yeah. that ultimately to happen right it's just kind of mind-blowing i don't really know like i really can't tell you like it's just not like anything at all that i've learned or i that i've studied you know um and i kind of wonder why it's so like we, I mean, we talk about where, where it comes from 
but I, I'm curious as to like why it's so this this other view of of heaven that you know I grew up with. I'm wondering why it's so embraced now, and not you know this other way of looking at heaven that's so radically different. I mean, it's over a gradual period of time that people's attitudes and ideas changed about it. I mean, I, I think there's a combination of you know something fairly benign and then something very insidious. Yeah. Um, I think the benign aspect is sentimentality. I think we have a lot of people who, you know, they want to believe that, you know, their grand their grandpa is in heaven and that they can talk to their grandpa and that he's watching over them. Right. It's just, it's got a very sentimental, you know, idea to it. And there, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. I mean, it makes sense why we would want to have some kind of sense of that. Um, right. And since people are also probably freaked out by the idea of like, they're not being the sort of clear cut, you know, afterlife once they die, right. that they go to sleep. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing is, you know, somebody who's preached a lot of funerals, right? It's, you know, there's that temptation to, you know, to in a funeral sermon to say, you know, they're, you know, they're still with us in some sense or whatever. Whereas, you know, the liturgy itself has this very clear idea that, you know, it says, you know, so it is that, you know, the, the person who's died now rests from their labors. And that's quoting from the scriptures, you know, that it's death is actually this, it's this opportunity to rest. You, you get a break, right? Which in that regard... Avengers Endgame gives a very accurate Christian depiction of death when, you know, when Pepper tells Tony he can rest now. Friday. Because that's what Christianity that's what traditional Christian views on death is. It's the opportunity to finally rest. And you know, that um, really speaks to me now. Because as I sort of gotten older and you know, now that we have lives, we have families to take care of, we have jobs to work, and it's basically endless. The idea of just like resting sounds so nice <laughs> like I, I was watching this video this is kind of tangenty but i think it's interesting i was watching this video where they were talking about what would it look what would it look like if if you only had to work like a 30 hour or like a four day a week job or like what would it look like if all of a sudden everything we had was taken care of what was a, what, what do you think the first thing you would do would be and, and he was like you would probably rest for a very long time like the deepest rest you've ever had in your life. Yeah. And the idea that it's like, oh, that sounds nice. <laughs> well, you think about, you know, like Genesis tells us work is a curse, right? Yeah. It's the product of human sinfulness. And so, you know, the goal of one day getting to rest from our labors as, you know, sort of totally forgiveness. But I think there's another, I, I, to, to touch on the second element here, I think there's also an insidious piece, which is that... If I think, you know, obviously that when the church, particularly in the West, became an instrument of the empire, ideas of deferring heaven, the idea that what we're working for, you know, what's happening on our earth now is temporary, it allows people in power to justify their actions. And it allows for them to send a message that's like, you know, basically like, well, I can exploit you because 
in the future you'll be free. So right. you're you're living for what's to come, not for a vision of the world in the here and the now. Mm-hmm. I'm of the mind in recent years that everything went wrong with the church. Not everything, but a lot of things went wrong with the church when we became the official religion of the Roman Empire and that we really quickly became an imperial religion. Totally. Um, especially, especially later on with like, um, you know, especially during the age of the age of exploration, as they call it, you know, when, you know, the Spanish show up to the state of Florida, well, not the state of Florida, but the land that would become the state of Florida, you know, and the Calusa Indians come out to meet, you know, Ponce de Leon or DeSoto, whoever it was. And they're just sort of like, who are you? And, you know, the first thing they do is they open up a letter from the Pope written in Latin that tells the Calusa that they are citizens of the papal crown and they are now obligated to be baptized, right? Like the first thing was an imperial statement. The second thing was an obligation in order to be a part of that imperial system. And, and so I think that, you know, so that's, I think that's kind of how we got into this, you know, slowly over the centuries got comfortable with this idea that we're putting up with a messed up situation in order to get an eternal reward. I mean, I think, there's no coincidence in the fact that, you know, white Christian slave owners use this language for their slaves all the time. Right. You know, we baptize them, but then it's like, well, we're not going to set you free because your your freedom actually comes when we get to heaven. Hmm. Um, right now, this is how it is, you know, so, yeah. you know, deal with it. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so I found this Bible verse as I was sort of researching this topic and this uh, really interesting view of heaven that uh, is very much uh, supported by N.T. Wright, who, if you aren't familiar with him, I, I suggest looking him up. Yeah, be aware be, be aware that he's got a couple of different kinds of books out there. Yeah. Uh, he's got his, uh, his newer stuff is written for a more popular audience, but his academic work, my gosh. Yeah. Five inch thick book, man. <laughs> like, and he's written like seven of them. Yeah. Um, well, I just think it's interesting because he's kind of the only person I've seen sort of... Um, really embrace this and try to and kind of get it out to the public and stuff. Um, but uh, he brings up a Bible verse, uh, Romans 8, 19 through 21. 8, 19 through 21. Yep. The whole creation waits breathless with anticipation for the revelation of God's sons and daughters. Creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. It was the choice of the one who, who subjected it but in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from slavery to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children. So I think that's actually like a pretty good verse that kind of backs up this idea of, let's just say we're waiting for it, not that we're going to go somewhere. You know what I mean? Right. Well, you think about it, this, this actually makes a lot of Jesus's parables click. Mm-hmm. You know, these whole ideas of like, you know, setting up, you know, he tells you so many of these parables where he sets it up as, you know, a, a homeowner goes on a long journey and his servants are taking care of the house. You know, what's it, what's the state of the house going to be when he gets back? Right. Right. That's exactly that's You know, it, it, it's totally it, 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 if you if the idea of the world being a place you're trying to escape, that parable doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, but that's you know, it's kind of the idea is what Jesus is really trying to get at and teaching us is that, you know, the, the vision ultimately is that heaven is going to come to earth and we can we could make that happen right or we fail and it happens anyway mm-hmm. but you know the idea is that we should be trying in the meantime and so i i, I just want to say this in related to this this verse as well just a moment for me that it, you know I've, I've read tom Wright. i read tom Wright or nt Wright, 
people call him Tom. Uh, I read uh, his Surprise by Joy um, shortly before I started seminary. And I've kept up with his work all the way through and just been really kind of blown away when I started to realize how right he was about what the Bible actually says about the afterlife and how wrong I had gotten it in my life as an evangelical. And something that in recent years really blew my mind was the realization that when it comes to sin, humans are the only ones who've sinned. Hmm. You know, your, your dog doesn't sin. Right. You know, no, nobody else sinned in that story. In, in, in Genesis, it was us. And if creation was created inherently good and in, in a state of perfection, then what that kind of means then is that creation itself still has perfection to it. We, the problem is our sinfulness is just made us incapable of really seeing it. And because we're incapable of seeing it, we exploit it, we abuse it, we misuse it. And really, the good news, the gospel, is partly about getting us to see creation the way God wants us to see it. Right. And the way that God, in fact, does see it. Um, and so that's why, like, this, this whole thing about creation being subject to frustration. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in this, you know, it's this frustrating time. Other Bible translations in English use the word futility. Um, but there's this sense that it's, it's not what it's supposed to be. And it's happening right now. But, right, it's in the hope that it's going to get better. Yeah. Yeah. The way I'm kind of like starting to view it, and it's it's probably really juvenile, <laughs> but it's like I, I think of like when I was a kid and I was kind of like left home alone for a little bit while my mom went to the grocery store or something. And then she would tell me, um, you know, make sure your room is cleaned up by the time I get home. I could have just not done it because right. she came back. Hey, well, I mean, she'd be mad at me, but she would also clean it up for me, right? Or make me do it in front of her. Either way, right. it, it's it's not the ideal outcome. <laughs> the best thing to do would have been just to clean my room while she's out. Right. Make everybody happy. I don't know. That's kind of how I'm how I've, I've started to view it, and it's like the way when I think that's dead on. Yeah, I think that's dead on. I, there's a, a, a Holy Trinity where my first parish. Uh, after seminary, they had a bumper sticker in the in the sacristy, like where all the vestments and everything is stored in the church. They had a bumper sticker on the wall, like one of the pegboards that said, um, Jesus is coming. Look busy. <laughs> yeah, I remember that one. And the thing is, is like it's a joke, but yeah. it's actually true. That's kind of what this is all about. Right. right is, yeah. is, you know, Jesus is coming. I mean, that, that, to me, that's 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 actually what the Bible is telling us to do. Yeah. Jesus is coming to look busy. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, like you said, I think it's, I think you're dead on the idea of being told to clean your room with the ultimate understanding that one way or another, that room is getting cleaned. Yeah. Right. It would be better for everybody if you just did it. Yeah. (laughs) But in the long run, it's still going to get clean. Right. Sure. And I think that that's really what it's all about is, you know, we're, 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 we're told, okay, try to make heaven, you know, try to make heaven here on earth, try to make that, make that a reality for people. And if it, doesn't get done well it's all right we'll, we'll get there right we'll, we'll make it happen you know um out of my own curiosity though chuck i have another bible verse that i feel like is brought yeah. up a lot when this when these ideas are brought up to other evangelicals especially mostly when you talk about the rapture but i feel like people can use it for like the idea of heaven as well which is first thessalonians 4 17 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh then we who are living and still around will be taken up together with them in the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air. So that or that way we will always be with the Lord. All right. So what does that mean then? I got to be honest with you. That's it's such a weird passage. <laughs> really? um, 
Yeah, it's First Thessalonians, which may be one of the oldest writings in the New Testament. It doesn't coincide with other parts of the scriptures. Really? So, I mean, I don't want to speak out of school here, right? Like, I'm, I'm, you know, trying to be, you know, be humble in my my take on this. It it, it very well could be that Paul's just very exciting, very excited at this moment, and he just writes like, "This is how we're going to meet the Lord in the air," right? Like, he's just very like, you know. Mm-hmm excited either way right like it's setting up this idea that the lord like the lord jesus is coming and so the idea then is that people would come up to meet him and i guess i think and to me the the image i've always seen with or i've long seen with it is then then we accompany jesus all the way back to earth like it's Hmm. we don't stay up there we meet with them up in the air but ultimately you know we we're, we're there to welcome him back I don't want to say this is a verse that is used a lot to, to talk about the rapture. Right. And if you'll notice, right, like the rapture, as you and I grew up understanding it, was something that would happen before a period of tribulation and then before a millennial kingdom and all this kind of stuff. But if you notice the way Paul talks about it here, it doesn't presage any of that stuff. It's actually that's how it, it ends. Like Jesus is back. That's, that's true. Time. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't set up that timeline that, you know, that people like uh, John Hagee or whoever you know, talk about. Yeah, exactly. That's, I never really, I never realized that. That's interesting. Moving right along. Why does God want to renew the physical world? Cause he made it and he loves it and he loves what he makes. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, uh, you know, G- Jesus somewhere talks about this, right? Like he's, you know, he's not going to lose anything of his, you know, that was given to him. Right. I mean, you know, God loves what God made. And so God wants to renew and, you know, or, or even, even if I don't even know if renewal is the right word. No, it's, more about maybe, you know, smacking us into the right perspective to see see it the way it was meant to be. I, I guess the thing that concerns me the most, and we'll get into how this relates to salvation, I'm sure, when we start talking about hell and purgatory. Okay. Um, but the way that I, for me, it's this, the, the thing that bugs me in the way that we've sort of conceived of all of this stuff in popular Christianity is... We've un, we, we talk about it without ever stopping to think about the fact that we've created a vision of the universe that indicates that there's something more powerful than God. Because if we would say that, you know, God is so fed up with creation, he's going to destroy it all, you know, outright and then start over or, or whatever it is we think he's going to do then that effectively says that there's something more powerful than God, that there's something that God can't overcome and God can't undo. And that he would just ultimately have to just wipe the slate clean. Um, like he doesn't have full control ob- over it. Right. And it puts obligations on God. Right. And, you know, the, but classic understandings of God is that God is a completely and totally sovereign being is under no obligation and has no limits. You know, I guess we would say in the, this idea of God's sovereignty that if God wanted to destroy it all and start over, God is it's his prerogative. But the promises in the scripture overwhelmingly are that God loves what he makes and that when we look at the long story of the scriptures is that God will restore things that are damaged and broken. Even in moments where God will say things like, I'm going to wipe you all off the face of the earth. I mean, if you read the prophets— uh, in the Old Testament, you see this language all over the place. The prophet's saying, God's going to destroy us all. God's going to destroy everything. He's going to uproot Israel. Not a single person's going to be left. And then like two or three chapters later, he says, but I'm not going to forget you, says the Lord, and I'm going to bring you back home. And it's like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You said you're going to destroy all of us. Why are we now suddenly back? You know, it, 
it's it's you know there's this hyperbolic language that's in there, but ultimately what we see is that God God is God is interested in restoring the mo- even the most rebellious and wicked of us into His good graces, because He He knows it's what we're made for and it's what's best for us, and so rather than I mean, if God were to, if God were put in a position where he felt that he was forced to destroy us, to obliterate us, then wouldn't that indicate that God failed? Yeah, I mean, that that's something I've always kind of wondered. Um, even, you know, when you consider something like the flood, the story of Noah, it wasn't really like he flooded the world, but he didn't necessarily destroy it, right? Right. I mean, it was and kind of, that was sort of, like, you could kind of, you could kind of say that was a, a renewal, right? Right, to cleansing. Yeah. By the way, yeah. uh, just as a side note, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but Jesus talks of, uses Noah and the flood as a way to talk about um, something where we draw we derive some of our rapture language around the whole left behind idea. Mm-hmm. I think I, I think I talked about this way early on, right? Yeah, you've talked about like uh, two women in the field, one will disappear, one will, one will remain. Yeah, something. one is taken and one is left behind, and that we've. Yeah. You know, turn the left behind into meaning you're cursed, but that's not what Jesus is saying because Jesus is using the image of floodwaters coming and sweeping people away. And so that means the person who's left behind is the one who was on a solid foundation. The person who hmm. is actually rescued is the one who's not taken away. The one who left behind. So you actually want to be left behind. When we think about heaven as a way to kind of escape death, escape this world, that kind of almost kind of creates an incentive to become a Christian, right? Right. Um, so then with this new information, how should this affect someone's views on Christianity? So how I preach, the how I understand the gospel um, is this, is I, I believe that because of Jesus's death and resurrection, everyone is just saved. Full stop. We're saved. It's just the reality of, of what's going on for us. Yeah, it's pretty controversial. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, is that you know, why we proclaim the good news, why we go out and spread the gospel. You know, we've, we've, we've turned this whole language about preaching the gospel into what, um, Bishop Neil Alexander former Bishop of the Episcopal church. Um, I heard him one time speak, he said, you know, we've turned it into fire insurance. You know, it's all about avoiding hell. But the reality of it is, is that salvation is more than just what happens when we die. Salvation is also about what happens in the world as we live it now. And I don't want to get too far ahead of us in our conversations on hell and, and, and purgatory and all that. But I think that I think it's important for us to to rem- so it's for us to realize that the those states of being hell, heaven, whatever, they are things that kind of reflect the sort of life we live in this world now. And that coming to a real, you know, being baptized, becoming a Christian, whatever, it's not about trying to gain heaven and avoid hell. It's not this kind of get out of jail free card. You know, Jesus is not a means to an end for us to have this paradisal existence. It's instead the opportunity for us to kind of get in on the program now rather than later, getting back to your image of cleaning up the bedroom. Becoming a Christian is that realization like, oh, I should go ahead and clean my room now rather than put it off. Right. Um, and, and so... You know, and so within that model, you've got some people, of course, who are going to hear it. They're, some kids are going to follow directions and they're going to clean up the room. You've got others who are going to hear it and say, ah, pff, my mom will take care of it later anyway. And then you've also got the people who will never, you know, they, they just didn't hear their mom tell them, you know, and she left and went and she comes back. Right. And all three of those scenarios is going to play out a little bit differently. Right. The person who completely blew off their mom is going to have to deal with some degree of punishment. Right. There or, you know, discipline, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. You know, the kid who just didn't hear. 
oh, okay, well, you know, there's a grace, there's a graciousness involved in that. Um, and so to me, it's about when we become Christians, we become Christians because it allows us to interact with the world now in the way that it's supposed to be. It becomes, you know, I, I think it's it's easy to say an alternate ver- version of the world, but the alt, but I don't like saying alternate version of the world because it indicates that this is somehow like different. And I think it's it's less. I think I think most people are living with an alternate view of the world. Mm-hmm. This is us getting to a correct vision of the world, and you know, and so it makes our task to be living as though heaven is a reality for us now, because I think it is. Right. We just. you know, we're just sort of, we have to discipline ourselves to see it that way. So then what do you think Christians should be doing to make the earth more like heaven? Plant some damn trees. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We do need trees. We're running out of those. I I, I mean, I really do think that, you know, obviously there's little things, right? You know, care for the poor, you know, the classic things, care for widows and orphans in their distress, you know, care for the poor, care for the sick, care, you know, for the hungry, you know, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, all those kinds of things. But I also think that there's bigger issues too, right? Like resource management and allocation. I mean, I think, especially if you're a Christian and you feel a call to politics, which is always going to be a challenge because being a part of a political system is always going to require compromise. I do think that you are obligated right to to champion things that seem right and heavenly proper resource management and allocation um you know i i totally think supporting alternative energy and renewable energy is part of the work of making the world more like heaven i mean come on we've we've got the means to power entire cities without having to dig up crap from under the earth right right you know Mm -hmm. um without choking out the atmosphere, without changing the climate, without those kinds of things. I mean, that, you know, and it's funny to me because the number of Baptist preachers and stuff I've grown up with, them telling me that, like, I hope my mansion in heaven isn't really a mansion, but a cabin out in the woods next to a lake (laughs) or a river. It's like, well, you could have that now, actually. And that, you know, and it's a heavenly reality. And so why not? Like, why not work toward a more resource equal, you know, earth, you know, earthy, you know, everybody's got their own garden, growing their food, kind of, you know, quasi-agrarian society or whatever we want to call it. But I, you know, I, I think it's, I think it, that's that, that's part of it too. Right. I think when that sort of incentive is taking away, you know, the fire insurance, we talk about. Um, I don't see how anything but you know love and justice uh, becomes like the center of your being. And I feel, and that's, and like you said, you can do all of that here. Right. You know, and I, I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon. I did. I went to the Grand Canyon on my way to Hawaii. And I can't, and I can't even really explain to people like how overwhelming it is. Right. Like, I, I, I think it's on par with like what astronauts see when they look down at earth to be completely honest. Yeah. There's, there's not a single photograph in existence that does justice to the Grand Canyon. Yeah. And like, I know it's really cliche to be like, uh, oh, you know, God, God is an artist. Look at the Grand Canyon. But no, really, look <laughs> at the Grand Canyon. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. amazing. Like, you will just like ponder your existence. I think, I think when you sort of take away that, like, God is just a way to get away from everything, but uh, that it becomes God is a way to, like, no, it, it's it's a way to take care of everybody. Yeah, and I mean, and and you know, it's again, it's. I think what happens is becoming a Christian is about recognizing that everything is a gift, and so you define the world 
in terms of giftedness, like in terms of being you're receiving it as a gift. And so the people who enter your life, you you treat them as and, and see them as gifts. There, are, yeah, there are some really horrible people out there who you know they receive a gift and they immediately trash it because they're like, oh, well, it was given to me. I can do whatever I want with. It's mine now. Yeah. But you know, most people when they receive a gift, there's an element of cherishing it. There's an element of you know, treating it differently because it was a gift. Right. And, mm-hmm. and especially, you know, you treat it differently based on who gives the gift. Right. You know, it's like a, you know, you know, like I have a, I have a pocket knife that was my grandfather to me after he died. My grandmother said, you know, your granddaddy would want you to have this pocket knife. You better believe I cherish that thing, you know? And so like, okay, so then the creator of everything that ever is, is like, here you go. Yeah. You should probably try to take care of that. <laughs> totally. And so I think that that, 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 that that informs our ethics, that informs all of it. And I think we're, you know, we're, we're, we are individually gifted, you know, in different ways. Like, you know, there are some people who they are totally wired to go out and, you know, cook like a, you know, cook like a big pot of chili and just sort of like go find people on the street and here you go, let's have a big meal together, right? There are people who do that and that, that, right. the other people who are super introverted and that's not their thing, but they can totally, you know, rally people through, you know, a, a, some kind of social media campaign around um, more sustainable practices from an or from a company or, or whatever. Right. And, and yeah. so I think that's all part of the, the, the ways in which we we live out this giftedness as Christians to make the world. Yeah, you know, we again, a cliche, make the world a better place. Well, you know, more than just a better place. How about like the best place? How about we make the world more like heaven? Right, right. You know, the ultimate ideal of where we want to be as people. When we were in college, I started to think a lot about like, what does it mean to be a Christian? Like, am I a Christian just because I go to church and I I pray and, you know, uh, I have a family, I go to work, whatever, and that makes you Christian. I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that that's it. And that right. was, that was, I was coming to that realization when I was in college. That's when I started to get like really involved in missions, got really involved in like, you know, volunteering my time. Um, I did a lot of stuff in college. Like I was just like, I was all I over the place, but I think that <laughs> quite literally, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I think that's kind of like my big takeaway is that like, I mean, even the Bible says like faith without works is dead. Right. Yeah. So like, what is works? Well, you have to actually live your beliefs. And I feel like this idea that we've kind of grown up with, it, it's, it doesn't really incentivize someone to live their beliefs. It's to have opinions, right? but not action, you know, which is like the point, right? Yeah. And, 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 you know, there's a, in that passage from the book of James that you just quoted about faith without works is dead. There's actually a joke implied in that text. It's really hard to get in English. Uh, I think what James is trying to get at is, you know, the idea of works is movement, right? So what he's saying is, you know, something that's alive is something that's moving, right? So when he's saying that, you know, he says, by my works, I'll show you the, you know, I'll show you the liveliness of my faith. Because he's basically saying that, like, even, you know, like, it's impossible, right? This is this thing about, like, it, you know, you, you can't. Like it's it's inc- ultimately what he's trying to get trying to drive home is the incomprehensibility of the idea that you could say I'm a Christian and then I don't know you know put kids in cages on the southern border yeah like that's a completely incomprehensible idea yes Christians sin but 
Christians also, you know, our sin is not something we try to use our faith to justify. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This idea that we can sort of segregate out that I'm a Christian over here, but I'm this thing over here. Like, no, it doesn't work like that. It's a total, it's a totalizing right. thing for, as a person, it, it takes over your entire being. That's the only way it can make any sense. Otherwise it, they're just empty words and they're labels and titles and they don't do anything for anyone. Right. You know, what's funny is it, it, it kind of ties into sort of what I'm starting to realize about like politics too, because you can kind of say the same thing about politics. It's like, what does it mean to be on, on your end of the spectrum of the political landscape? You know, are you just sitting on your couch watching CNN and, and yelling on social media? Is that your political ideology? Like, no, what yeah. happens if you actually like put it to work? I love, I love the, the employment of the term rhino. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I've heard of that. Yeah, R-I-N-O, a... Republican in name only. <laughs> yeah. um, so my history, here's my history with that, with a similar term is um, within the Godzilla fandom, mm -hmm. um, the 1998 Godzilla movie, everyone refers to the monster as Gino yeah. um, <laughs> because he's Godzilla in name only. Right. And so, but I, but I, so I find that ironic that that's a term employed by the Trump wing of the Republican party <laughs> to like criticize someone like, Mitt Romney, right? Who is the like the platonic ideal of a Republican mm -hmm. in the ideological sense of what the platform and policies and ideas of like a Republican have traditionally been? You know, particularly the more conservative Republican, because it used to be a thing you could be a liberal Republican, because uh, you know Thomas, because uh, Theodore Roosevelt was a liberal Republican, but um, um. So the idea that you would have somebody who does not support any of the classic Republican ideals of like limited government, uh, you know, you know, conservative spending, you know, care about the deficit, those kinds of things um, that, you know, but they're, you know, that somebody who's like that, they, they now claim that they're the Republican, they're the true Republican. And it's a weird inverting of, of, of titles. Um, but, but it, it speaks to this similar kind of thing you're talking about here, right? Like this idea of Christian in name only, you know, we've got a whole yeah. lot of people out there who they bandy this word about, right? You, you know, you're, you're, you're Pat Robertson's. I mean, I'll say it, I'll say it right now. Like, <laughs> people like Pat Robertson are not Christians. They're just not, they, they've applied the term, um, you know, I mean, do they believe in Jesus? I, I mean, I guess, but their Jesus looks very different than the one I see in the Bible. Um, you mean to tell me that getting up on television every single day and screaming about liberals and they're getting paid millions of dollars isn't putting your your faith into work? Is that what you're telling me? No, it's not. Oh. It's well, putting. Then, it, we'll say. Well, well, why in the world is, are we doing this podcast? And Chuck, geez. Let me, let, me, let me actually tell you. It, it, <laughs> yes, it is putting your faith into work. It's just what is your faith? In that regard, right? Like it's. It, it's something that I just don't know that, you know, it's something that we, 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 we've come to call Christian. Yeah. It's, it's part of the, it's part of the Christian Ohana perhaps, mm -hmm. but it's definitely a, a more embarrassing wing of the, of, of that. Yeah. Um, but dude, I've heard uh, so many stories of him, like stomping around in cowboy boots on set and just like firing assistants, like on the spot. You learn a lot of yeah. things when you go to Christian film school. Just well, and well, and, I mean, I think of um, one of the things that I've heard over the years from like waiters is they talk about a lot of waiters hate working like brunch on Sundays because the the after church crowd comes out for brunch or lunch, or whatever, and they tip horribly. Oh, dude, there's also I mean, like I said, 
going to a Christian film school, I have, uh, you know, quite a few buddies who, who do videography for a living and they do like a lot of work for like corporate stuff and nonprofits. I uh, guess who they refuse to work for churches. Yes. Because they give them the classic, like, Oh, you can, you can put it in your resume. Yeah, exactly. There's that. And also like, well, we didn't feel that we had to pay for it because you're doing work for the church. You know, that's so. an element. I've encountered that so many times. I just never understood it. I've yeah. never understood anyone who can say I'm a disciple of Jesus and then feel very comfortable with being like, I, I don't feel I have to pay you for your work. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, so even crazy. Paul, even Paul goes to the trouble to say like the laborer is worth his wage, like get paid. <laughs> cool. Well, that's, uh, that about does it. I think. Yeah. Overdoes it. I think. Yeah. <laughs> but it seems like we haven't been doing it for very long. It's very interesting. Uh, seems like we just kind of flew through it. Yeah. But I think we have a lot here to be honest. All right. Well, Father Chuck, thank you so much. And uh, and what in the hell are we talking about next week? Uh, we are talking about uh, Disco Inferno. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, we're gonna have. Oh gosh, you can cut this if you want. But can you know we're gonna talk about? I'm, I'm sure we can do the same thing. We talk about pop culture depictions of hell. But can we also yeah. spend a brief period of time talking about our personal ideas of what hell would be like? <laughs> I'm into it. I'm for it. Yeah. Like, what is hell? Hey, if you're listening, leave us a comment. What would your idea of hell be? Maybe also, and, what's your idea of heaven? Well, yeah. I'm saying we will we'll read it on yeah. the episode. So leave oh, yeah, us, yeah, that would be great. Leave a comment on the, on the YouTube or the Facebook or the Twitters, the Instagrams, all of our places, where you should be following us and liking and subscribing. And I'm willing to bet. I bet Mike Heath. I bet one idea of hell that he could imagine, and I'm and I'm and I'm and I'm narrowly defining you here, Mike, based off of your appearance on our show. But is the idea that there is you have access to someone tells you there is a warehouse full of Indiana Jones DVDs, <laughs> and it leads you to believe that these are Indiana Jones films that you only wish you could see and you enter the room and it's just a Costco sized warehouse of just nothing but kingdom of the crystal skull. <laughs> and then you turn and find the doors have been locked from the outside. And it's all in standard definition DVD. It's not even a Blu-ray <laughs> standard definition. Oh, Oh, and, um, and, uh, it's pan and scan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Not even sixteen nine ratio. Yeah, you got to plug in the AV cables and stuff. Oh yeah, and the coaxial somehow, cable. Somehow, yeah, or it's all just VHS <laughs> with bad tracking. <laughs> Actually, that would probably make the movie better. Probably <laughs> interspersed yeah. with like video footage from like your sixth birthday. <laughs> yeah, this is gonna be a good. Uh, that's this just abusive. Good, that's like that's. Why well, you gotta put me in the movie? <laughs> The um, the uh, uh, I'll talk about it, but I can give a little teaser here if we want. It kind of reminds me of when I went to visit this uh, Buddhist uh, temple in Thailand, and the outside of the temple was depicted, or it was paintings depicting the various hells that you could suffer, and they are, oh boy. Um, cool. That sounds pretty metal. It's uh, very metal. Uh. Cool. So prepare for next week as we go to the lower depths. Cool. So 
Join us next week. Uh, thank you for listening and watching. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe. I believe there's a bell somewhere that should be rung. Um, do all that. And we'll see you again next week. Have a wonderful week. Good journey. Good journey. <laughs>